All right, it's, uh, it's great to be together. Wow, it's almost, it's, it's almost like old times. It's getting a little bit closer to old times. So great to be with those of you in the sanctuary. Great to be with those of you who are at home for uh, what, what feels like in here an inspired time of worship. Last Sunday morning, uh, we read from chapter 5 of the Gospel of Mark in our continuing journey through the Gospel of Mark. We read about a man whose life Jesus had radically altered for the better. And you remember that having been transformed, this man wanted to go with Jesus, be with Jesus, follow Jesus, hang out with Jesus. But Jesus declines the man's request to go with him and instead says to the man very specific words that I repeated multiple times last week and I'll repeat again this morning just for refresher. Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy mercy on you. And many of you embraced that invitation to uh, write down a response to that for ourselves. And it was a delight over the course of uh, this week, uh, last Sunday afternoon and uh, the early days of this past week, to read what a lot of you had written down, uh, how you had expressed and really come to terms yourself with the ways the Lord has been good to you and how God has had mercy on you. If you did not do that last week, if you were here last week, but did not do that then, or have not had a chance to do that, I still wanna encourage you to do that. Uh, Make up your homework from last week, if you will, and then to share that with someone else, as I encouraged you last week. Because when I get up, or someone else stands on the platform and uh, shares a sermon, The point of these are not information as much as transformation, all right? So information has value, but the point is transformation. It is information when it lands with you. It is transformation when by the grace of God, you do something with that. Are you with me? All right, are you with me at home? All right, uh, so, and we've talked, uh, talked a couple of weeks ago about our fifth uh, of our newly articulated values. Uh, following the Lord Jesus, we strive to, and that fifth one is cultivating spiritual growth continuously. And this thing that we talked about last week of uh, really putting our finger on the ways that the Lord has been good to us and how he has had mercy on us is a part of that process. Not so much the information, but the enacting of that and the transformation that happens through that. Again, are you with me? And so it has value when we respond to the things to which God has calling us. I shared a few weeks ago a quote from Elaine O'Rourke that I wanna share again this morning just to refresh us on that idea. Uh, She wrote, spiritual formation is, or spiritual growth is, quite literally the forming or shaping of one's spirit, that invisible thing that is, we know, a part of us. Remember that your spirit is a substance. It will be unintentionally shaped and formed by your experiences, thoughts, feelings, habits, and fulfilled desires. Rather than letting the world treat your spirit like modeling clay, you can influence 
what shape it becomes. You may choose to intentionally form your spirit with God's grace into one that looks like that of Christ. The process of spiritual formation is the process of reclaiming all our elements for the kingdom of God. That's what the spiritual disciplines are for, working with the action of God. The goal of spiritual formation is transformation. This transformation comes from God. Your role, our role, is to make space for it. And through intention and discipline, to train our inner selves to accept that grace. So I encourage you in some way, shape, or form to specifically articulate, if you didn't do it last week, to do it today or this week, how the Lord has been good to you and how he has had mercy on you, either in writing or to another person or both, and then definitely whether you've done it or not to another person, with another person, for another person, and specifically maybe someone who hasn't known the goodness of the Lord. Otherwise, again, these are simply uh, sermons of information and not transformation. Now let's pray. We got, uh, God, we ask that you would help us to be molded uh, into the likeness of Jesus through the renewing of our minds according to your word, by your word, in your word. Give us ears that are good to hear, eyes that can see, hearts that are fertile soil. To receive your word, I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart if my words stray or deviate in any way from your word. May they immediately be be forgotten. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last Sunday we reached and began chapter 5 in our extended study of the Gospel of Mark this morning. We are jumping ahead in Mark's Gospel, over a third of Mark's Gospel, to the beginning of chapter 11, so that we might read some Holy Week passages uh, today and on Thursday, Friday, and next Sunday on Easter. Today, uh, Palm Sunday, uh, before we do this, though, I want to offer a little bit of context for the passage of Scripture from Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 1, that we're going to read in a few minutes. A little bit of context and a little bit of history. The Jewish people were more immersed in God's Word than we are today. And though we are generally not looking for a Messiah as they were, they had this idea that all of this scripture in which they lived immersed was somehow pointing towards some great thing that God was going to do, some great person whom God was going to send. They had this anticipation, and it was grounded in all of what we call the Old Testament, all of their scriptures, all of their holy words. So I want to set the scene a little bit for this passage from Mark 11 by rewinding a little bit. First of all, From the the book of the prophet Zechariah, uh, one of the latter and later Old Testament prophets, who wrote in chapter 14 these words. A day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem, 
to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the, women's, the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. And that day there will be one Lord and his name the only name. And again, on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. East of Jerusalem, this imposing mountain that's just a valley away from which you can see all of Jerusalem. There was also in history, in the minds of the people that day who were occupied by Rome at that point in Israel. This idea and this image of great emperors, beginning with Alexander the Great, who lived in these realms of military domination. And the picture that would have been in a lot of people's minds would have been Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great, as he traveled around the Mediterranean world conquering different peoples, had this famous horse, probably the most famous horse in antiquity, named Bucephalus. And Bucephalus was this huge, grand stallion. And everywhere Emperor Alexander went, he rode this grand horse. And he was said to have been the first to ride it. And as with all great king's horses, no one else rode Bucephalus except Alexander. It was his and his alone. That's part of the context. Now back to the ninth chapter of Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then in the ninth chapter of the book of 2 Kings, we read how the great prophet Elisha commissioned a younger prophet from his company of prophets to go to the respected commander Jehu and commission Jehu as the next king of Israel to replace the rotten, mean, nasty King Ahab. And how Jehad Jehu's top military officers with him responded to Jehu being anointed king with these words in 2 Kings. They quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. They took off their outer garments. They took off their best clothes and they put them on the ground for him to walk on and announced and proclaimed, Jehu is king. This is a formative part of the context of where we get. I also must mention the Psalms. There are different types of Psalms in the book of 150 songs in the scriptures. And among those many types of Psalms are two royal Psalms which deal with the spiritual role of kings and the worship of Yahweh. And then there are Hallel Psalms or praise Psalms which were sung by pilgrims on their way up to Jerusalem and to the temple. And in one of the royal psalms, there is, that is also at the same time a Hallel psalm. Psalm 118 are found these familiar words to the Jews. 
Lord, save us. In English, from the Greek, from the Aramaic, from the Hebrew, Hosanna. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With branches in hand, join the festal procession to the, up to the horns of the altar. That's some context. And now finally to Mark chapter 11, verse 1, the word of the Lord. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this, say, the Lord, Kurios, needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying the colt? They answered as Jesus had told them, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, He sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches that they had cut in the fields. People just didn't carry around cut branches on a normal day. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming king of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. That's where he went. He was on his way up to the temple, as the song, as the psalm suggests. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany, back to that little town with the twelve. And while verse 11 is a surprisingly unremarkable end, to this passage of scripture, a flat end in what is otherwise an, otherwise an excitement building passage. It also builds this sense of anticipation, even in its unremarkableness, while suggesting that things may not go exactly as people might expect. You notice in the passage that everything happens as Jesus dictates. He's not surprised by anything. And yet, doesn't he seem just a little bit surprised as Mark tells the story that all the action in the temple is already shut down for the day? Oh, like I'm late on a regular basis. That's part of my depravity. I don't imagine Jesus sort of, oops, gosh, I'm late. Oh, his timing is always perfect. There's a reason for it. And so this passage, almost always read and preached, or one like it from Matthew, Luke, or John, on Palm Sunday, has in our minds and in our memories this idea of children coming into the sanctuary, waving 
palm branches as we uh, audible today ourselves. This idea of pure praise and excitement and hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, of worship and fanfare and celebration, of hope and joy and prosperity and success and popularity. And yet if we look closely in Mark's gospel, Mark doesn't really tell the story that way. Though Matthew and Luke and John, where the mention of palms actually happens, have a little bit more of that and we glean from them which were written later and put into Mark which is written the earliest. But there is a soberness about Mark's telling. If we forget the images that we get from Matthew and Luke and John, there's a soberness about Mark's telling of this story. Mark isn't too quick to allow us to crown Jesus as king just yet. There is this irony about who is he? Is he all of these things? Is he Messiah? Jesus never uses the word Lord for himself in Mark's gospel. In this passage, he is not explicitly called Lord or Son of David, though those images are there and a part of it. The reader is left to wonder, who is this person? Is he king or is he different? We know the story of, about, of, of Alexander's great steed, his horse, his war horse, his battle horse. Here comes Jesus into town for the first time not walking in the Gospels and for the only time not walking in the Gospels, but instead on a horse as a conquering king or emperor would enter a city. And yet it's not a horse. It's a donkey. It's lowly. It's unprestigious. What are we to make of this Jesus on Palm Sunday. Mark calls us to slow down. Mark calls us to listen. Mark calls us to be attentive. Up until this point along the way, for the most part in Mark's gospel, Jesus has kept a low profile, has he not? We've talked about the messianic secret. We've seen already in the first four, five chapters of Mark's gospel, Jesus saying, don't tell anyone. Let's keep a lid on this for now. And yet here he could not be calling any more attention to himself or allowing such to happen as he does. He's at a pivotal crossroads. What will we make of Jesus? Jesus is different too. When a king came to town, he would plunder the resources of a community, a town, a village, a region, a nation that he came to conquer. He would take whatever he wants and make it his. Jesus borrows a cult and fully intends, as Mark says, to return it immediately. There is this humility among this king. Though we're allowed to believe that he will reign and that he's greater than any king who has ruled, he only borrows, and he borrows a donkey. What are we to make of this king? We, 
in our Palm Sunday celebrations have historically had great times of praise. It's probably my favorite Sunday of the year, especially when the kids are able to enter the sanctuary and lead us in worship as they weren't able to this morning but have been every year of my life up to this point. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of festivity right in the middle of Lent, awkwardly. It is relief from the darkness of Lent for a Sunday and a season. When we get to raise our hands and wave our palms and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He is the king. He is our king. He is the king we expected. He is the king we wanted. He is just like we hoped for. And yet he is very different, Mark says. Jesus rides in in enigmatic silence, according to Mark. Mark depicts an entry into Jerusalem which is triumphal only for Jesus' followers, who, if we're honest in Mark's gospel, have not yet understood his destiny as son of man. First, Jesus It is an entry into suffering and death for him. Jesus makes no response to a royal acclamation, but his silence seems to suggest, I am a Messiah and I will save, but not as you expect. The irony of this ragtag procession is that its enthusiastic participants are wholly wrong. In their expectation that Jesus will immediately restore the fortunes of Jerusalem, and yet they are right in the hope that he is Messiah. He is no less king than their words suggest, but his kingdom is other and more than they dare to think. The crowd shouts, Hosanna! which as I've said means save us. It's related to Jesus' own name, which means he saves, Yeshua. Hosanna, Yeshua. He saves, save us, thinking that Jesus has come to save them from their political enemies. But what we need most is for Jesus to save us from ourselves. Human nature and human aspirations have changed remarkably little over the years, over the centuries. And this passage in Mark's gospel, which is read so often, again, on Palm Sunday and only on Palm Sunday, reminds us that we still need saving from a variety of things. First, and I'm going to say this, take a deep breath. We must be saved from a petty nationalism that divides the world world into tiny enclaves set over against one another. Jesus did not and Jesus does not come to fulfill anyone's political agenda. As our judge, he may condemn it as he did the temple in Jerusalem in the passage that immediately follows. Jesus has more words of condemnation through and about a fig tree metaphorically, but also in the temple and the overturning of tables. Jesus doesn't come to fulfill our political agendas. As our judge, he may condemn them as he did the temple in Jerusalem, and yet people today drape Jesus in nationalistic flags. 
and assume that he not only endorses their political slogans, but will work to accomplish them. The one who comes to Jerusalem comes as the king of the entire world and dies for all people, as Mark's gospel is explicit about. His people will not be confined to any one nation, and his sacrificial love will reach beyond all national borders and beyond all races. He comes to save us from petty nationalism. Second, he comes to save us from mercurial or fickle, fleeting faith. A faith that abandons Jesus at the first sign of trouble. Fast forward a few days to Jesus at Golgotha, to a last supper, to disciples wondering, fleeing, denying, abandoning, betraying. He comes to save us from our fickleness. He comes to save us from our waywardness. He comes to save us from our self-absorbed ideas about who he is supposed to be for us. He comes to save us from fear. He comes to save us from ourselves. And third, we must be saved from foolish expectations of glory so that we can experience God's power truly affected on the cross. God does not win the story or the scene. He is not victorious. By sending armies into bloody battles, but by sending his beloved son to the bloody cross. As a king who gives his life for others, Jesus reigns with a kind of power that earthly kings can never match. And so Mark's gospel and Mark's Palm Sunday calls us to step back and to listen, even as our hands are up, waving palms of praise. Mark's account is noteworthy for what doesn't happen, at least outwardly, but what is being prepared for behind the scenes and inwardly. Mark is warning against mistaking enthusiasm for faith and popularity for discipleship. He is preparing us for events and for a king who has the power and the will and the commitment not only to be crowned but to save and to redeem and to reconcile and to make whole and to bring about a whole new and different kind of kingdom, not simply relief from Rome, but relief from our own selfish absorption and from the fall manifest among us and around us in the church and outside. A king who will bring life and who will bring it abundantly. May his kingdom come. May his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Guided by Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, Lord, as we come to an altar of sorts, We recognize our own sin and the things that need to be repaired and 
reconciled with other people, with people in our lives, and forgiven and healed by you, more importantly. As the Apostle Paul guided and instructed, we examine ourselves, our lives, our actions, our perspectives, our wants, our demands, our visions, our hopes. In the light of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, the great city on a hill, on a donkey, coming to save, not by conquering an army, but by conquering hearts. We confess our desperation and our need. We confess in your grace our want to get things right. Help us. Have mercy on us. Show us. Lead us. These things we ask in the name of Christ the Lord, Christ the Messiah, Son of Man, Son of God, Jesus. Amen.